Welcome to the Exponential Podcast. My name is Peyton Jones, and as Exponential's content director, I'll be your guide through the curation of the world's largest multiplication library of resources and training. We currently have four shows running Monday through Thursday, each with a different thrust towards accelerating multiplication. On Monday, join us for front lines tackling current issues facing pastors and planners. On Tuesday, tune in for Biblically Speaking, Theological Foundations for Transformative Race Conversations. On Wednesdays, Ralph Moorhead's Practical Multiplication, A Pastor's Guide to Accelerating Multiplication. And lastly, Candid Conversations is on Thursday, Unpacking Definitions of Diversity. Be sure to catch them all as they will serve as equipping companions on your discipleship journey towards multiplication. Today, we'll be catching up with Todd Wilson and Grant Skeldon on Candid Conversations. The Candid Conversation Show is intended to help leaders engage in conversations about diversity in a healthy way. Each show focuses on a topic and helps participants unpack what that topic is, why it's divisive, and what can be done to promote both change and unity. Let's join Todd and his co-host for today's episode of Candid Conversations. Hey, I want to welcome everybody to another edition of Candid Conversations. I'm Todd Wilson, the founder of Exponential, and uh, my co-host, Grant Skelton. Grant, say hello. Hey, what's up, guys? Uh, Grant's with us again today from, is it safe to say, Grant, uh, I, I, can I say your yeah, last day is. in Dallas, Texas, before your first day in the new season of another place? Or uh, Yeah, yeah. Oh, so I'm officially moving all my stuff to Nashville today, right after this call. Uh, and then uh, I'll get married in November, and then I'll move in November to Nashville to join Q. There we go. So yeah. congratulations on that with a marriage coming up soon. And our uh, special guest today is Leonce Crump. Leonce is an author, a speaker, church planter, uh, founded Renovation Church in Atlanta, Georgia with his wife, Brianna, back, I think, Leonce, 2008-ish, 9-ish, somewhere. I'm probably going to get that wrong. He can correct me, but. Okay. We moved here in 2008, but we didn't launch until 2011. There we go, 2011. Four kids, three girls and one boy. Uh, former pro football player uh, with my son's favorite football team, who's doing 50-50 well this year. And uh, uh, so whatever that means. But so thanks for being you. with us today, Leonce. Glad to be here, bro. Good to see you both. Good to see you, Grant. Yeah. Congratulations. Thank you, man. Thank you. Good season, baby. I love it. I'm Why? 30, so I see it as my, my Jesus year. It's just, it's just getting started. <laughs> oh, that's right. That's right. Well, Lance, whether you know it or not, and, and this is a good thing, uh, you really are part of the inspiration for what we're doing this fall, and definitely the Candid Conversation series. Um, I, you and I had, I think it was a three-plus-hour conversation, four-hour conversation, <laughs> and, and I, I know what it means to get four hours of your time, so we're gr- very grateful, but Leonce and I had a conversation months ago when we were really wrestling with how does exponential respond with all of the racial tensions happening and, we, you know, looking at shifting our entire fall programming from regionals to roundtables and this new Candid Conversations thing. And Leonce, you, you know, you have those aha moments and you had an aha moment for me that even prompts today's episode on this idea of disproportionate. I shared with you that as, as an older white leader, um, 
each time there's is a, a national problem and another issue and we kind of go through the pattern of a whole bunch of apologies and I'm sorry and then looking at the facts and the different things that go on um, I shared with you that what's difficult for me and and when you and I had this conversation Rashad Brooks had just been killed in the parking lot of Wendy's which isn't far from your home right. and I shared with you that what's really hard for me is I watched over and over the webcam footage from the police officers, from the, the people that were there. And what was difficult for me is I, I could watch for five seconds, stop the video and say, okay, what did the police officers do wrong? Watch for five more seconds. What did they do wrong? Get all the way to the end. And what was hard for me in a lot of cases, I, it'd be like, okay, I don't, you know, I can go five second increments and not see anything the police officers have literally done wrong. And yet a person lays dead on the ground, which is clearly wrong. And so you very eloquently shared with me this idea of disproportionate. And I would just, I think it would really benefit our audience if you would just spend whatever amount of time you want unpacking this idea of disproportionate through whatever examples you want, Rashad Brooks in the parking lot, however you want to do it. I just think there's no better way to introduce this topic than you to share your experience with it and even some of your own story. Yeah, so in that conversation, I think that was probably the most important piece of it was, was coming to the place where if all other variables are equal, that there is this repetitive pattern of, uh, let's just say even the law is just, <clears throat> there's this repetitive pattern of a disproportionate application of it. And, and that was kind of the heart of our conversation. And, and, and one of the examples I used, and we can use many, and, and maybe we'll touch on several, but one of the examples I used, and if you recall, I sent you a video uh, where there was a young white man who walked into a bank, attacked an officer, um, reached for his gun, got his gun. Several other officers jumped in. They wrestled with this young man for uh, more than a few minutes. Uh, and then eventually subdued him, arrested him, and walked him out of the bank. And that's one of the more extreme examples of this same general idea that it seems in all of these situations, even if the offense is the same, even if the variables are the same, even if the intensity is the same, even if the issue is the same, even if the potential law broken is the same, there is this reverberating and recurring pattern of a different outcome for people of color and for white people. And so in that conversation, we walked through several examples. The, uh, a few years ago when the young man uh, shot up the movie theater in Denver during a Batman screen with an automatic weapon, somehow they subdued him and arrested him uh, without killing him. Uh, Dylan Roof went into a church, murdered nine people. Uh, somehow they subdued him without killing him and took him to Burger King. Uh, Michael Brown is killed in the street, unarmed, uh, shot down in the middle of the street. Uh, and at the same time, in the local papers, another story is running where uh, a white man uh, is in a pursuit with police. He hits one. He shoots at them. He runs through several backyards. And yet somehow they manage to subdue him and take him to jail. And so when you look at the arc of this narrative, 
it works out the same way uh, seemingly every time. Now, of course, somebody's going to pull the story of the guy out in, in, I believe it was Phoenix or somewhere out in the West, the white guy who got shot in the mountains. Okay, well, that's one for 100. Uh, and so what we find, and actually let me chase that rabbit for a minute, because uh, how do we charge crack versus cocaine? It's literally one to 100. And so what we find over and over again is the justice system uh, is constructed in such a way that it allows for a disproportionate application of the law, even when all of the other variables remain the same. And in the Rayshard Brooks case, it's almost a one-to-one of the young man who went into the bank and reached for the officer's gun, except Rayshard Brooks didn't actually reach for the gun. Uh, and, And somehow he's dead on the ground in this scuffle. Why is the young man in the bank not dead? Why is Dylan Roof not dead? Why is the man who shot at the movie theater not dead? Why is the guy in California who had an automatic weapon at a playground with children a few years ago not dead? And you can go down the line in these high-profile situations where, uh, for one reason or another, African-American people end up on the losing end of the justice system. And here we are again, and I, I, you know, I'm sure we'll touch on this more later, but here we are again in the case of Breonna Taylor, where an officer is charged for stray bullets going into other people's apartments, uh, but faces no charge for the person that they actually killed sleeping in the bed. Uh, this is a glaring example uh, among many glaring examples of the the terrifying reality that in a lot of cases, the justice system is actually working just the way it's meant to work. Uh, But its application continues to harm communities uh, of black and brown people. Yeah, it's a lot. Yeah, it is, it is. Um, I wanted to, you know, this year has been I mean, how many churches had a 2020 vision? Um, This year has been definitely, uh, no one was prepared or preparing for what this year was going to look like when it comes to the pandemic. And then you add on top, I've seen a lot of pastors, I'm sure you've seen the same, that are like, man, I I feel like almost throwing in the towel because there's just a disappointment and depression that is even hitting a lot of leaders uh, when it comes to just not being able to lead like they've led in the past and having to really reevaluate the scorecard. But then you have, trying to lead your people in the midst of just, yeah, the racial tension that just escalated this year in so many ways. I mean, it's not that it's like escalated as much as I think part of it is we can't even have too many conversations or build relationships during this season because we're at a distance. Uh, And so uh, I've often heard Eric Mason say that proximity breeds uh, empathy and we literally don't have proximity right now. It's what we can't have. Um, And so one of the things I wanted you to share on is uh, you're a very unique position uh, and unique angle that you take in is on social media. You actually haven't posted anything since, at least on Instagram, since July. Um, there's so many pastors that feel a pressure to post, to respond, to, to share. Uh, can you share just even as we're taking in what you even said is a lot, um, what led you to uh, do what you did and kind of, I think you said breathe. Um, and how did, would you advise pastors as they're trying to take all this on and lead um, themselves and their congregation? Yeah, that's, that's a complex question, um, only because of the variables. And here's what I mean by that. 
uh, I have now a you know ten or fifteen year track record of speaking into these things. <clears throat> uh, my book, my first book, speaks to these things. The book I'm working on right now, uh, which will likely be titled uh, "Riot," uh, speaks to these. <laughs> Um, I could pull 10 sermons, you know, in two minutes that speak to these things, conference talks that speak to these things. And so I believe there are a number of us. You mentioned Dr. Mason, very good friend of mine, Brian Loritz, Dr. Loritz, another good friend of mine. I got to get my doctor so I can fit into the crew. Uh, uh, Jerome Gay, uh, Brandon Washington. Uh, There are a number of us that have been very vocal, uh, and very present for years and years and years and yeah. years. Uh, uh, Anthony Bradley is another on Twitter, which I know you're not on Twitter because that's for us old people. Uh, but, nah, come on. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but for years, uh, um, uh, Lisa, uh, Sharon Harper, I mean, I, I just keep going. Um, for years, there's been several of us, uh, Thabiti, who, who have been incredibly vocal in this space uh, and felt like we were hitting our head against the wall. And often yeah. Yeah. we were uh, met with incredible resistance and um, an incredible tension for trying to point to the reality of what is happening. And so in July, if I'm being quite honest, I was kind of teetering on the edge of exhaustion uh, because it's not just the racial upheaval. There is a financial crisis uh, in our country right now. Uh, there is a pandemic globally uh, right now. And then the racial crisis is on top of that. So we've got, we've got the Spanish flu, the stock market crash, and the civil rights movement all converging yeah. in, in an eight to nine month period. And, um, the space was starting to feel crowded, uh, and and I don't mean that there were too many people speaking, but and, and you know this, the way social media is set up, it creates echo chambers, and so I'm posting things, and most of the people responding to me already agree with me, and so I'm not actually reaching into the communities that I hope to to reach into. No shade toward Todd, but like I'm not reaching into Todd's community. I'm not. Uh, you know, it's it's like, yeah, that's right. You know, 1,000, you know, likes on something and one negative comment. And so I, I started to find the social media space not only exhausting, but but perhaps even ineffective where I am. Now, that's part one. Part yeah. two, what if some of my white brothers and sisters who have not been vocal, who have not been present, who have access to communities that I presently don't have access to. Well, if they start speaking into it, if they escalate their activity, if they come to it with an informed perspective, right? Not saying nothing crazy or ignorant. um, Then they have an opportunity to actually leverage social media uh, in what I believe can be a significant way. So that's one variable. Uh, and the second variable. And the third thing is um, I've spent this time working on what I hope will be a substantive project that goes beyond hashtags and posts um, 
and pictures. And I'm not sure how to get it out there without leveraging social media yet. I'm still working through that dynamic. Um, but a friend, a few of us friends are working on an organization that we hope will help to uh, give the church education and language and a reculturization uh, so that they can start to meet these moments proactively and not reactively. It's good. It's good. Yeah, so I've, I've got. Um, I'm just tired. <laughs> so I'm like, I don't want to post nothing else, <laughs> you know, but we'll see. I might be back. Well, I, I love, I love that you are creating. Yeah. I mean, if there's ever a need for that, uh, yeah, you're working on a project that's going to help the broader church. And, and I agree. I think, uh, often I heard this say, once said by Andy Stanley, he said, don't try to make a point try to make a difference. And if there's anything that keeps happening right now, it's like a lot of groups making big points, but maybe not making a difference because the other side's not hearing. It. It's just a lot of claps and amens from the side that already agrees. And so I definitely appreciate what you're doing. Your space feels like right is yeah everybody's in their corners agreeing with their champions yeah not getting any movement yeah and i've personally i've never met y'all tell me if y'all met anyone like this but i've never met someone that said something like i used to strongly believe this but after a very civil healthy conversation on facebook now i've come over to this understanding i just never heard that yet i I got one i literally (laughs) have one (laughs) 15 years Um, I'm going to do my best to articulate a question rattling around in my head, Leon. So it's actually a two-part question. Um, so here, uh, let me take a stab at this. So it, it, in, the, in the context of justice and, and this idea of disproportionate, let me – I'm thinking through the lens of kind of a macro narrative on justice and then what I'd call a micro narrative on justice, the macro narrative being – can't we all agree from a principle and a belief kind of level at the macro level, we don't want to see an unarmed person laying dead in the parking lot shot by police off. Like, can we just rally around the macro narrative that we, 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 from a justice standpoint, it doesn't seem just that an unarmed person would lay dead in the parking lot kind of thing. And then for me, we're, everything just quickly gets confused is what I would call the micro narrative on the justice, which is truth matters, facts matters, logic matters. You and I have talked, your dad was an engineer. I'm an engineer. You know, I, I immediately, when there's a problem, go to the, what's the problem? What are the facts? How do you get there? So here's, here's a stab at the question. When we've got a macro narrative on justice that we can probably agree to that something's wrong, and then all of a sudden, the details of the micro narrative. So take Brianna Taylor. Uh, like the, we, I think we should be able to agree we don't want an unarmed person in their bed, laying dead, getting shot by police officers. Kind of. Twitter, Twitter would disagree with you. Yeah, and, and there we go on the. Uh, but but at some point, we've got to be able to try to unify without even getting into the details of who did what, when, and how the police did the order and all of that, I'm, I'm just saying if we go to the high level, if we can just find where's the common footing on justice and the idea that 
again, we, 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 as Christians especially, we don't want to see people dying unnecessarily. I mean, somewhere there's a justice part that if somebody dies unnecessarily, we, we've somehow got to be able to call that unjust at, yeah. at some point, okay? But, but now quickly, I, I was uh, – caught off guard is not the right thing because I'm no longer caught off guard with any, <laughs> in the conversation. But immediately yesterday after the Beyonce Taylor uh, outcome, on my Facebook, all, oh, it's unjust, it's unjust, it's unjust. And so I – okay, I did what I – I'm going to go look at the facts. Let me go try to get the facts. You can't get the facts. Like that's the, the, if we're at the micro narrative, it is a he said, she said, he's, I honestly can't, I don't know what the facts are. And so here's what happens for me. And I'm going to pose the question for you then is it the narrative that she, she was murdered. So I immediately, okay, what is the definition of murder? Actually, what's the difference in homicide and murder? And when you look up the definition of murder, it has two parts to it. There's, it's unlawful. What happened was unlawful, and then there's got a there's a, another criteria that it's a malicious sort of thing. Right. And if I'm just purely putting a logic hat on at the micro narrative of justice, what I'm wrestling with is it's wrong and unjust that she's dead. And then I look and say. By the law, by just the letter of the law of what murder is, I can't, I can't take the facts, even no matter whose they're coming from, and conclude that if I were on the grand jury that, that was yesterday, the facts would lead to me not being able to say it was murder. Because I'm talking by the legal definition of murder. Yeah. So... Here's the question. I, I'm gonna. I want to circle back to that part. I want to bring this to the clarity of you in your life. You shared a couple of examples with me, where what I'd like to do is have you share an example with you in your own life, where the macro narrative we can say that's just wrong, and at the micro level, just the the details as you would give me, be like that's wrong kind of thing. Like, so could you share one or two examples of? the disproportionate thing in your life, if you don't mind, where you've things that have happened to you throughout your life or whatever, if you don't mind sharing. No, I don't mind at all. Um, the, one of the most glaring examples is when, um, my wife and I were pulled over, um, several years ago in Texas and, uh, they, so let's talk about escalation for a second. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> they approach the vehicle with their guns drawn. So who's escalated the situation? Um, I have a weapon pointed at me. So what other response could I possibly have? Um, And just for our reader's benefit, you don't even know why you're being pulled over at this point. No, at the time, because I wasn't speeding. Uh, I had not changed lanes unlawfully. I was just driving. Um, And so weapons drawn, they demand that I exit the vehicle. Uh, I refuse because that is, so here's the macro, unlawful to demand that someone exit their vehicle without cause. Um, I know my rights, which is what I said. And that was met with, I decide your rights, boy. 
Now, hold on to that when we come back to Breonna Taylor and what took place in that apartment. I decide your rights, boy. Now, at the time, I had a weapon. Uh, I had a Glock 45. I was licensed to carry. It was in a case under the seat. And so I think about Philando Castile exercising his right as an American to be armed in his vehicle, announcing to the officer, I am armed in this vehicle, showing the officer that he is armed in the vehicle, and then the officer shooting him anyway. Versus during the protests a couple of weeks ago, uh, when uh, the young man killed two people and ran straight past the police with the gun strapped <laughs> to his side, right? So back into my story. This is all under the realm of disproportionate. So at a macro level, you've demanded I get out of my vehicle. I said no, because I don't have to. But my wife is afraid because she knows I have a weapon. And she has learned quickly in the course of our marriage uh, that the situation could turn at any moment. So she pleads with me to get out of the vehicle. And so I do. Gun still drawn. Any move I made could have ended my life. As they hold me at gunpoint and interrogate me, where are you going? Where have you been? Why are you out here? Is this your vehicle? Etc. Now, um, th think about that. When you know you have not done anything wrong and someone asks you if this is your vehicle. By the way, I've entered my 40th year of life this year and I've been asked at least 10 times if the vehicle I'm driving actually belongs to me. May I ask you, Todd, how many times you've ever been asked that question? Zero. Zero. 15 was the first time that happened. I was driving my parents' Mercedes. I got pulled over, thrown onto the hood. They searched the car completely, emptied out everything, told me that I didn't belong in that neighborhood and surely wasn't driving that car. Who did it belong to and where did I steal it from? No questions asked. So here I am on the side of the road in Texas, fast forward. Guns drawn, being interrogated. Another officer walks around the vehicle and asks my wife if she's being held against her will. My oldest daughter, who is now 13, is sitting in her car seat in the back of the car Man. while her dad is being held at gunpoint and her mom is being asked if she's being held against her will. So at a macro level, we have a grave injustice. One, I was pulled over for no reason. I did not receive a ticket. Um, guns were drawn when they approached my vehicle. I had not posed a threat. The situation was escalated before they even had a conversation with me. Uh, my rights were violated when they demanded that I get out of my vehicle with no probable cause. They searched part of my vehicle without a warrant. Uh, and the moment I resisted, and by resisted, I meant their unlawful behavior. The officer with a gun drawn on me says, boy, I will blow your blanking head off. The only thing that de-escalated the situation was another officer arriving and literally de-escalating the situation. And so I was moments away from leaving my, possibly leaving my wife a widow and my child fatherless. 
and then sent away without a ticket because there was nothing for which to ticket me. That's one example of several that at both a micro level and a macro level, uh, yep. I suffered an extreme violation of justice. And so, Grant, I'm going to let you jump in. But so the follow on on that then is your advice, Leonce, where let's assume for a minute, I, I know it's not 100 percent, but most of our listeners, most Christians w- would at the macro level of your story. Yes, it's wrong for somebody to get pulled over with no apparent cause. Yes, it's wrong to come approaching with guns. You know, the macro part of your story, let's just assume the average Christian is going to say that's wrong part. Now, at the same time, you're going to have the natural response for people who don't know you is going to be to jump to the micro story. Okay, let's hear the fact. Let's get the details. Let's hear the facts. Let's go through the what the, you know, the, there's always two sides to the story we'll hear it. So my question is, over and over, I think we're seeing this pattern where there's a macro level that ought to be equally applied that we could say is disproportionate that's there. And you've got, especially probably the white community, when an issue happens, is going to want to jump to the micro with, let's get the facts, let's get the details, let's understand the details. How do we maneuver without being paralyzed to make progress together when that happens? Like, what? how do we need to respond? Like, Brianna Taylor right now, I'm just being honest with you. My first thing is I don't understand all the details, so I try to go understand the facts to say, okay. And, and then immediately you get paralyzed in the facts because he said, she said, it's you just so and then it's just you're paralyzed with it so how do we move past it in a positive way yeah by beginning to ask the right questions so when you see a macro injustice why is the first question well what did you do wrong and would you ask that same question of a white american Uh, a couple of years ago ed stetzer covered this story on the christianity today blog and the comment section got so disgusting from Christians, seminary students, pastors, saying, if you had just listened to the police, that would have never happened to you. If you had just gotten out of the vehicle when they said that wouldn't have never happened to you. If you had just followed the rules, that wouldn't have ever happened to you. Um, And on and on and on. You should be grateful that you still have your life. The police are just doing their job. Tell me what blue lives matter means anyway. Because the last time I checked, uh, a uniform can be taken off. This skin cannot. Now, I love police. I'm pro-police. My appeal, actually, let me take that back. I'm pro-human. And because I'm pro-human, I care about police and I care about people on the other side of it. And my appeal has always been, well, if there are good police, then it is incumbent upon the good police to hold those other police accountable who misrepresent their culture and their nature. And so in order to avoid getting paralyzed, you got to start asking the right questions. Why is my inclination to try and dismiss the injustice of it? Because that, at the end of the day, if people are honest, not everybody, but I would say most people that I've been in those conversations with, and I've been in hundreds now, um, the fact-finding mission is an effort to dismiss the atrocity not to actually understand the facts. 
Because in understanding the facts, you still find yourself at a disproportionate application of the law. Because there is enough anecdotal evidence, as well as legal history, that will tell you that. And so the facts of the matter don't actually eliminate the, uh, the, the uh, distortion of justice that actually takes place in those situations. Because the facts are that the guy who shot at the movie theater should have been shot. That's the facts. The facts are that the guy who had a gun trained on kids in a playground should have been shot. The facts are, and, and I can go down the line, Dylan Roof certainly should have gone, shouldn't have gone to Burger King. The, the facts are that every time you get into the minutia, you find that one of two things has happened. Disproportionate application of the law, number one. Number two, oftentimes, as in the case of Breonna Taylor, the law is actually working just as it is designed. And I think that is an even more terrifying reality that under the law, if I suspect your home of being a trap house or being a place where a drug dealer sets up, I don't need to ask. I don't need to call ahead. I can kick the door in and start shooting in plain clothes. And the law protects me as the officer, not the citizen. And that is the facts. And when you start facing those facts, then you become more comfortable with ideas like police reform. You know you can actually love the police and still want it to be reformed, the same way we love the church but still want it to be reformed. But we have so set up this disgusting dichotomy in this nation that to question the practices of policing and the judicial system at all makes you a leftist idiot, and to defend it at all makes you a right idiot. And neither position is firmly rooted or grounded in what God would have us to do. And so what, what this time reminds me of, is, is, it's apropos that I've been in Ecclesiastes, from, from Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 16. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was the wickedness. And, and it, is, it is quite apparent that in the place of justice and what is supposed to be the place of righteousness in our nation, that there is a systemic wickedness that will not let go. And until we face it, both from its spiritual dynamics and its historical dynamics, then we're going to recycle this conversation over and over again. People are going to become more and more polarized. And the church is going to remain impotent as she has been in this conversation because she doesn't have an answer uh, that will satisfy the masses, but neither did Jesus. Leon, um, one of my questions is how do you think that we can uh, heal what seems to be a disproportionate view of the Imago Dei, uh, depending on who you are? Mm -hmm. Um, and the two, two examples I'll give is, uh, I mean, kind of to your story, you, if you watch the Jacob Blake clip, um, there's been yeah. so many other clips to show white people having a gun, actually, and shooting back and still being, as you've already mentioned, still being detained through taser, 
through uh, force, but not immediately through, resulting. Through any means, Grant. Mm -hmm. Through any means. Mm -hmm. And I don't mean to cut you off, but that is what is so infuriating, especially fresh on the heels of Breonna Taylor, is yeah. great lengths are taken to preserve white life in those conflict situations. And black life is dispensed of quite easily. And, and so when I say black lives matter, it's not a political statement. It's a plea that we would matter too. And yesterday's judgment let us know once again that perhaps we just don't. Yeah. yeah. So to your point, and, and So what, maybe what would you say to, uh, that's one case. And then, uh, you know, I was, I was talking to someone and uh, just here, I'm in Dallas, so I'm in that, that state, Texas. And uh, someone was very, very, I mean, this is like a poster child pro-life person here in Dallas, uh, a philanthropic Christian leader and uh, so pro-life. But then when it came to Jacob Blake, they just any way to, hey, devalue and say, hey, it's kind of justified because he was this or he was that or he had done this before, Correct. which we see with almost every story. Um, what would you say to the person who is extremely pro-life, um, but then disproportionate when it comes to, again, life, if it is the Imago Dei displayed through maybe a person of color, especially if they maybe have criminal charges. Um, luckily, yeah. there was someone else there who said that you can't be pro-life and not and try to dehumanize a person you just, it's just if you're pro-life you're pro-life and this was a person uh, a white person so i was like very encouraged but i was like this is your friend and they totally are seeing hey we need to save the children but the uh, jacob blake you know he did this and so it's okay yeah so I i'm gonna try to knock out two in one because there's a there's a question from the audience can you share more examples of asking better questions from the white community and the black community so we can listen well yeah. Um, so let, let's do a two for here. It, it, it starts with asking hard questions of ourselves. So let's start with that one example, pro-life. Well, what does pro-life really mean in the U.S.? What does it really mean if we can stomach what has been going on down at the border? How, how can we be pro-life and stomach what is happening at the border. It's not possible. How can we truly be pro-life and then look for every reason to excuse the fact that a man with children got shot in the back seven times? How can we be pro-life? And, and then I go on Twitter and see, well, the cops were doing their job. The cops had the right to shoot. Well, her boyfriend shot first, so they were just returning fire. So, there was no crime here. Well, then how can we be pro-life? You see, in, in this nation, pro-life is really pro-birth. Because if it was pro-life, then it's pro-human flourishing. And if it's pro-human flourishing, then we have to ask those questions and more. We have to ask, how do we get here? How did we get to this moment? How do we get to the place where uh, the majority of the imprisoned population is African-American? How do we, what are we going to do now? that weed is legal all over this nation. But there are people serving multi-year bids for smoking and selling weed. In fact, a great deal of the police or of the prison population is because of minor drug-related offenses. And now it's legal. 
What is the restitution? What is the recompense? I, you know, if we're not willing to, to ask the hard questions for how we even got here, you know, my ancestors built Georgetown University. I don't know if you saw that PBS special, uh, but a portion of my ancestors were the slaves that Georgetown used to build Georgetown. Okay, that was my introduction to that great university. So while previous generations were getting educations to get jobs, to hand down generational wealth, my generations were actually building the facility where they would get that education. What do we do about that? How do we address that? How do we address <clears throat> the promise of 40 acres and a mule on the other side of slavery and then the South overturning it within half a generation? and having all of that land returned back to them. There's a series of questions that we have to ask from a historical, from a political, and from a legal and theological position that start to force us to face the ways that we actually help to perpetuate this broken system. Yeah, yeah. Last question real quick, Todd, is, um, this is probably the hardest question to ask because I'm like, man, I don't know if I know the answers or heard of this talked about too much. But from my perspective, as, a, as I'm watching these the comparison videos of like, why did it end up this way and then end up differently, especially when the, the person of color is unarmed. And it just seems to be that there is an inerrant fear that is significantly larger for someone who's a person of color, even whether they're armed or not armed. And so how do you, I mean, how do we heal that, that, a person with a gun that was potentially white is seemed more harmful or dangerous, or they're afraid for their life would be the quote, um, than a person of color without a gun, uh, doing something far less skeptical or, uh, yeah, just questionable than, than the white person. So like, how do we address basically the narrative fear that seems to be legitimately there, um, playing out, especially with officers, but I'm sure there's many variations that it plays out. In other ways, other, other ways. Lastly, I mean, even in your story that you shared, I mean, it's you've done nothing, and there's just this like inerrant fear that you may, though, that I may do something. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so let me tell a more benign story real quick. Um, several years ago, I was outside of my house cutting my grass, and the mailman walked up, and he was delivering mail to the box, and I I reached for it. And he pulled it back. And I said, well, that's odd. Maybe he just wants to put it in the box. Then he goes to my neighbor's house, delivers their mail, continues his route, and then he comes back to me. And he says, hey, do you work all over the city? And I said, excuse me? And he said, you're doing a great job on the lawn. Do you work all over the city? And that's when I understood what I was being asked. And I said, um, what do you mean? Because I'm that kind of guy. The Lord's still working on me. <laughs> he said, well, I'd love to hire you if you work out in the suburbs. And I said, well, if lawn care was my occupation, I might be interested, but I'm actually tending to my own yard. He turned about as red as you could possibly turn as a white person as he realized the assumption that he had made. That there's no way in whatever cognitive process that he has going on in his mind that this young black guy could own this home and be doing his own yard. 
he surely must be working for the homeowner. Grant, that is at the heart of it. What is disturbing, uh, and you all can look up this research for yourselves, even African-American officers are more likely to shoot black people than they are to shoot white people. Because whether we want to acknowledge it or not, and, and to answer your question, this is where it begins. It begins with acknowledging yeah. that blackness itself has been dehumanized and criminalized and marginalized in this country. It just is. And even in the most positive ways, it is still demoralizing. It is me preaching at a mostly white church, a mostly white event, and someone going out of their way to tell me how well-spoken I am. Well, I hope so. I'm multiple degrees. I should be well-spoken at this juncture. Uh, it is uh, overhearing a conversation years ago in the beginning of our planting phase from a very significant donor who said, I like Leon's. He's different than the rest of them. It is being pushed either into a reflection of a caricature or a model of what they think black should be. Yeah. And then in any given moment, those roles could swap immediately. Immediately. And, and so I, I don't think we heal, Grant, until we acknowledge that our nation from the crystallization of race-based slavery, which happened after Bacon's Rebellion. So uh, in, in the book I'm working on right now, part of what I believe the, so, the, the solution is, is to have a shared narrative. You'll remember this, Todd. We talked about that. We don't have a shared narrative, even about what America is or how it got here. But people need to understand that slavery was not uh, resolutely race-based in its beginnings. That Irish and African and indigenous peoples lived and worked together, made love together, made babies together. That's where most of the uh, mixed race population of that early generation came from. It wasn't through slave rape, though that was a real thing. It was through intermarriage and interrelationships. And then a rebellion happened called Bacon's Rebellion, where a group of white indigenous and African slaves and indentured servants almost burned down Jamestown. And so the powers stepped back and said, well, we can't have this because if these white folks and these black folks and these native folks get together again, they will take over. And so that was the beginning of incentivizing whiteness. They went to white males and they said, we'll give you 30 bushels of corn and a certain number of acres and a gun and some shillings to get you away from those black folks. Then they went to white females and it was 50 bushels of corn and a certain number of acres and a gun and some shilling to get you away from those black folks. And that was actually the crystallization of the racialization of slavery. But most people don't know that. And, and wouldn't know it because it's not taught in schools. There's a whole tangled web of our historicity that allows these things to continue to be perpetuated. And so a part of the slave codes, for instance, uh, a part of the slave codes was a language used to describe black as big, dangerous, scary, sexualized. Keep them away. And that's what led to the murder of Emmett Till because he whistled at a white woman yeah. or winked at a white woman. 
And so protecting the virtue of whiteness and continuing to criminalize the supposed sexual mania of blackness led to the murder of a child. And so until we are willing to face that as a nation, it is ingrained into our culture that black is bad and white is good. The doll study taught us that years ago, that black is diminished and white is elevated, that black is uneducated and white is educated, that black means working in somebody's yard and white means home ownership. That unarmed and black is dangerous and armed and white is manageable. Mm. Until we face those realities in earnest, the cycle will never be broken. There's a, Leon's kind of a two-part question. Um, the uh, we've got one question that refers to uh, the weight of pastoring a multi-ethnic church with racial tensions, and I'm I'm getting that feedback fairly consistently from people who are leading multi-ethnic churches that it's almost you know the weight. I, I hear those exact words, the weight of it. So the first part of the question is, can you just address the realities of that, the weight of pastoring a multi-ethnic church amidst uh, things? And then the second part of the question uh, is, how do you stay sane and emotionally healthy when you get sick and tired of being sick and tired kind of thing? So that's sort of the two-part. So, um, you know, pastoring a transcultural or um, somewhat synonymously uh, multi-ethnic church is exhausting um, because for generations the black church has been a safe place for black people for the black pastor and so particularly during conflict moments there is this wrestling of trying to decide if say this, will it be too much? If I say this, will it be too little? If I say this, will I lose these white folks that I'm starting to bring along and educate in this reality? But if I don't say this, will I lose my black folks because they will feel like I'm not representing them well? And and my Korean folks they, they just, and, and Indian folks, they're just trying to figure out what is happening uh, and how to stay out of the spotlight and remain the model minority. And I got, you know, half of our Latinx people are like, yo, we down with the black folks. And the other half are like, yo, we trying to mix in with these white people and just kind of disappear. And as long as y'all not looking at us, then, then we're fine, you know? And, and so there are all these competing variables and factors and tensions that I don't think uh, mono-ethnic church leaders will ever face. Um, not to the degree that we do. Uh, and and they don't have as many people to try and represent in their leadership. And so, you know, the weight of it is insurmountable without Jesus. And I don't, I don't mean to do a Jesus juke or, or to try and simplify that too much. And I'll get into some practicals because I think they're tight. But, man, if I didn't feel called to this, I couldn't do it and I wouldn't do it. Because um, there's every reason in the world to not be sane and not be healthy. <laughs> um, and... And it takes so much mental and emotional energy uh, to, to try and hold all those things together. And so to the person that asked that question, the very best advice I can give you is to continue to remind yourself that this is God's church. It's his mission. It's not yours. They're his people. They're not yours. 
and to continue to winsomely step into those moments with both grace and truth. And as far as your own personal health, um, I think every pastor needs a counselor and a coach and a friend and a community. That's four things. Most pastors are not in community. Most pastors have no real friends. And I know very few who have a counselor or a coach. Uh, And they all serve different functions. My my coach helps me see my leadership blind spots, uh, as well as helps me to not feel crazy. Uh, My counselor helps me to deal with my uh, family of origin wounds, as well as my ministry wounds and where those things intersect. My community reminds me that as much as I am a leader, you know, an apostle prophet in my community, I'm also a part of the body that I need the koinonia too. And, And I need to be seen and known in the context of community. And then my friends remind me that I'm a person. I'm a person with flaws. I'm a, I'm a mess. You know, I've almost blown up my life more times than I can count. Um, and and they are the soft place that I land um, when I just need to be a human being without any responsibilities of any kind. And and if you don't have that as a leader, then you are charting your course to burn out or blow up. And it may happen now, it may happen later, but it is going to happen. Yeah. I want to open up. I mean, there's definitely more questions you guys in the last maybe minute or so, a couple of minutes to, and if you want to ask a question, but maybe just to follow up because we don't have one yet is how do you, uh, how do you think uh, pastors or just people of color in the church, in the body are kind of dealing with such a unique time uh, this year, especially because it's like really high highs when it comes to victories with like, the NBA or certain, I mean, even NFL admitting, Hey, we were wrong. I mean, how many times has that ever happened? Um, And I I loved watching uh, like the tennis. I mean, it's, it's everywhere where it's like, okay, we, we got it wrong the last couple of years and um, we are, we are going to embrace it. So there's these high highs of like, wow, that's never been done before. But then there's so like, then you see the case and the verdict uh, this week. And it's like, Oh my gosh, it's still, it's not over. Like it's not, how do, how do you uh, speak to and encourage pastors to, uh, and again, Christians, just, um, yeah, just to keep going, stay positive, but also realistic with where we are today? Yeah, I, the, the phrase I've been using is a timid hope. A timid hope. Um, you know, the Bible promises, promises us that hope will never put us to shame. Um, but my humanness wraps a timidity around my hope because I've seen so many reversals of victory as soon as we get them. You know, Mm -hmm. I I wanted, I wanted so badly to be surprised when the verdict came out. Like I wanted to be, and I couldn't be. It it is, it, it, it shook out just as I thought it. And there are a number of variables when they settled the case, when they preemptively, you know, um, declared a state of emergency, how long it took. Uh, but I wanted to be shocked, and then I wasn't. And that is a heartbreaking feeling uh, of another defeat. And yet I see all these other little glimmers of, of possible change, even as some of my white brothers have, like, bumbled through things. 
Yeah. Uh, I've tried to give them incredible grace because at least they're trying. Yeah. You know, at least they're saying something, even if it's crazy at the time. And, and if they're humble, there's a chance to learn from it. Um, and, and so that's, that's how I'm living. And that's how I'm advising is like a timid hope that there seems to be some glimmers that a change is on the horizon, but it's not going to be quick. And it hasn't been. Um, and there be maybe several steps back before we feel a real thrust of energy forward. Yeah. Thank you. Thank well, Lance, you. I want to thank you for being with us. Uh, I want to remind everybody uh, that we're doing these hundred round tables on racial reconciliation this fall. There's definitely a city near you. Um, Leonce is one of our speakers at these roundtables. Uh, it's a day-long, multiple sessions. Uh, this idea of disproportionate would be part of what's embedded in what we're doing. So, uh, you know, if you want to hear speakers like Leonce at this, it's just an amazing opportunity. Uh, roundtables of eight, eight different leaders uh, seeing the talks and then having candid conversations around the table about the topic. So, uh, multiplication.org forward slash roundtables. Um, and Leon's I'll just sort of both you and Grant, if you've got any final things you'd like to highlight or say uh, just on the topics. Great. Keep going. No, I mean, for, for me, yeah, it's, the, it's just that it's, I mean, I'll acknowledge, man, this is one of the heavier, uh, definitely one of the heavier conversations that we've had, but it's also, it's a heavy week. It's a heavy day. Um, and so I was just thinking, and we haven't done this before, but man, Leon, if you wouldn't mind, I mean, any final thoughts you have, but maybe just praying us out would be, would be maybe the best way we can end with the situation that we're in. Yeah, I'll just pray. Um, oh, Father, none of this has caught you by surprise. Um, you're good. You are sovereign. You are present. Um, your word promises that one day you will judge the wickedness of the world. And Lord, that does not exclude us. And so might we be found safe and secure in Jesus. I pray for every leader out there, Lord, th those who are afraid to wade into this conversation, uh, give them courage. Those who are tired, Lord God, renew their strength. Those who are opposed, Lord, transform their thinking of the flourishing of all peoples, would be a worthwhile endeavor and that the gospel that we preach actually points us in that direction. Lord, let your church arise to this moment and be a prophetic and compassionate witness to the kingdom of God and to the glory of the same. We ask these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Amen. 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 Thank you, Leonce. And Thank we will brother. see everybody next week. Grant, good, good luck on that move.
This fall, Exponential is hosting roundtable events in cities all across America. These half-day gatherings in smaller settings will allow church leaders to prioritize peer-to-peer conversations and receive practical training on how to prepare their church to lead for racial reconciliation. Exponential roundtables will help you continue to pursue church multiplication in these challenging times. Find a roundtable near you this fall by visiting multiplication.org. Thank you.